The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. All right, Matthew 26. And before we jump in, I'm going to echo something Jacob said, that I'm really grateful for Brian and what he's doing. And I will mention one thing. That is, he reminded us that this month is Pastor Appreciation Month, so please appreciate your pastor. Um, I don't mean... That's not on the agenda, please. Right. Yeah, he, didn't, he did not uh, tell me to say any of this, but I will say focus on how you approach him. If you're only coming to him when you have problems, maybe make a point to go to him without a problem this month and let him know that you love him and care about him and that you're praying for him and that God has him on your mind when your life isn't falling apart. Um, if that's ever the case, and pretend it's not falling apart for a minute, if, if it is the case. Um, but I appreciate Jacob. I appreciate his intentionality in pastoring us and, and helping us grow and discipling us. And um, I know he's weird. And sometimes it seems like an angel missed a switch and just said, this is going to be an interesting person. Just let it pass on through. But uh, we still love him. And we're grateful that he hasn't uh, tucked tail and ran from us yet. But uh, Matthew 26 um, also has a lot to do with food, so we're going to continue a little bit of a theme. Um, There's just a lot of eating going on in this passage. Matthew 26. I am going to read through the whole passage. I thought about not doing that, but there's a lot going on, and I kind of want to just grab it all together and um, pull it in and make sure we're paying attention to the passage. I almost thought about having Jordan read it for me after he read earlier today, (laughs) but um, I'm going to stumble through it and just try to pay attention to what the passage is saying. We want to let it set the tone for the rest of the message. Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted it together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when he saw the disciple, when he, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of, a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you have always the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did, a, did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And it was evening. He reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, it broke, it broke, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it, with, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of, uh, because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your willingness to speak to us. We thank you for your spirit that ministers to our hearts. I pray that he'd soften them tonight, today rather, that he'd give us clarity of mind as we both speak and hear from this passage. I pray that you would uh, allow the words that you've spoken to penetrate our hearts, to soften us, to bring us into deeper communion with you. I pray all these things in your holy and precious name, amen. The first four verses just set the tone for us here. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, and we can remember what Jacob's been preaching to us over the last week, the last couple of weeks, he has just got done with his teaching about how he will ultimately be victorious, how he will come, he will return, he will establish his kingdom, he will reign. And he then steps into a different discussion. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then in another place, completely separate from the one that they're at, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who was named Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Passover is coming, um, a time of remembrance for the people of Israel, but what God has done in their nation, in their lives, it's something they do every year. This time's approaching um, it says that they're about two days prior to this happening. And Jesus is reminding his disciples that, yes, I am going to reign. Yes, I am going to conquer. Yes, I am going to be victorious, but first I'm going to die. And he takes them from this kind of high cliff top moment right on down, and he's reminding them of his death. And I just want to say as a way of introduction, if you can, if you can look at verse 2 versus verse 4, that's a really weird way to say it. If you compare verse 2 and verse 4, there's two very different plans going on. Two, two very, very different things are in motion here. You have in verse 4, the chief priests, the leaders of the people, and they are conniving, they are, they are planning, they're scheming to kill Jesus. They're trying to do it in a way where it will gather the most acceptance, the most willingness from the people, and they know that if they try to do this during Passover, uh, 
or before Passover, then it's going to cause an uproar. It's going to cause a, a, a riot. It's going to be violence. But Jesus is telling his disciples, no, I'm going to die well before they even intend it to happen. They have their plans, they have their schemes, but in reality, I am in control of this situation. I've been telling you my entire life that I've known you these last three and a half years that I'm going to die, and I want you to know that it is under my control. It is by my plan. It's by my design. Right after teaching on his final glory and coming to reign, he doesn't miss a beat. He wants to remind his disciples of his death, and he wants to remind his disciples of his control over the situation. Acts chapter 2 even tells us that the, uh, the very men, the very men who betrayed him, the evil, lawless men, guilty of their sin, were decreed to have done the things they were going to do prior to the earth even existing. This is all by God's design. It's all by Christ's plan. He's not caught off guard by any of this. J.C. Rowell tells us he reminds them that he must die a sin offering before he reigned as king, that he must take, before he reigned as king, that he must make atonement on the cross before he took a crown. Calvin continues to say, and I have a quote, you can put it on, on the screen if it's there still. Christ was not unexpectedly dragged to death by the violence of his enemies, but was led to it by the providence of God. For our confidence in the propitiation, the replacement, is founded on the conviction that he was offered to God as that sacrifice which God had appointed from the beginning. And therefore he determined that. His son should be sacrificed on the very day of the Passover, that the ancient figure might give place to the only sacrifice of eternal redemption. Christ is intentional to call our attention to his death. Why? Because the master truth of scripture, Christ died for our sins. We should return to this truth daily, Calvin implores us. Christ wants his disciples to be thinking about his death. He wants them to be remembering his, his death. This whole passage is kind of built around that idea that I am going to die, I'm going to die for you. You need to remember this. I'm in utter and total control of the situation. This is going to happen. I am going to die. And I am in control. Why, why is he messing around with the times? If, if the Pharisees have it in their plans to not kill him yet, but to wait for an opportune moment when the people would be more accepting of it, when they wouldn't riot for it, or whatever their plans were, why is he looking at that? Well, Calvin's quote tells us, and I believe past, that, that scripture is kind of replete with this truth, that he is showing that he is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He's the last one. He is taking all the symbolism, all the religiosity, all of the, the pomp and circumstance, all the tradition that the Pharisees are building up to, and he's crushing it with his death. So when they think they're going to get the upper hand, he's ultimately getting the upper hand. He's ultimately creating a truth that will last for an eternity, that he is the final sacrifice for our sins. And he's welcoming us to remember this with him. He's welcoming us to come into communion with this fact that, that he is the sacrifice. He is the one that is going to pay for all of us. And so I think what this passage is getting at, ultimately, is that our sovereign God knows everything, including the things about us. He knows everything. 
He knows our deepest intentions. He knows our hearts. He knows our secrets. He knows our sins. And he welcomes us to commune with him anyways. Our sovereign God knows all and welcomes us anyways. I'm going to, I think the passage presents this um, in application in, in one very positive way and two pretty negative ways that have positive application as well. And so that's how we're going to approach it. Uh, verses 6 through 13, just to start. Let's read those verses again. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment over my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He sets this scene... Um, Matthew puts it in this in this regard. Uh, John puts it in pretty much the same order. It, it, more than likely, these verses aren't taking place um, in chronological order. Uh, I think I think it's John that tells us that this scene in Bethany took place six days prior to Passover. Jesus's conversation with his disciples is happening two days prior to Passover. Passover. That could mean he went to Bethany for six days and said what he said two days before going into Jerusalem. It's only two miles away. Uh, more than likely, just because of the other passages, Matthew is choosing to put this place here to show us something. He's making a point. This didn't happen in this order. Um, he's just making a point. It's not even in the same place that they're standing. Um, if I think we go all the way back to one of the previous chapters here, it tells us they're already in Jerusalem. But again, it's pretty close distance. Either way, it's here for a reason. He's sharing this for a reason. Um, John 12 kind of sheds a little bit of light on what's going on in this passage as well. And so we'll touch on some of those things. They're not completely necessary to the, the passage, but they're helpful. But he sets this scene where he is at dinner in the house of a leper that he's probably healed. Well, the guy's definitely healed. It's assuming Jesus healed him because no one really got healed from leprosy. Um, other than when Jesus did it, of course. And they're eating this dinner, and this woman comes in with this, what would, it, what would sum up to like a really pretty perfume box. And she walks up to Jesus, and she pours it over his head. And the reaction from the disciples, which seems to be done fairly privately, it, Jesus catches on to what's going on because he knows everything, is that we could have done something with this other than just dumped it on Jesus. Like this is worth a lot of money. There's good that could have been done from this. And this poor woman just walks in and she's worshiping her Lord and she pours out something that would have cost her something that would have been sacrificial and she's judged for it. She's judged for it. So John 12, again, tells us that, first of all, this woman is Mary who has a history of worshiping in ways that draw judgment. Uh, if you remember the story of Mary and Martha... Why is she sitting there just listening to you when I'm doing all the work? John tells us it's the same thing that's happening here. Mar Martha's running around working and Mary's dumping things on Jesus. So she has a history of kind of being chastised for this thing. 
And Jesus has a history of defending her. It also tells us that the thing she's pouring on him, in case we don't, in case we miss the significance here, is uh, first of all, Judas is the disciple that's calling out the issue. Um, all the disciples tend to agree with him, but it's Judas speaking when he says, "Why is this happening?" And he calls it out as being worth uh, three hundred denarii. Denarii would have been a day's wage, so we're looking at roughly a year's income. And he, we could have given that to the poor. We could, have, we could have done something with this. We could have used this in a far more useful way than this dumb gesture that this woman is doing to worship Jesus. And another passage, in case you did the research, talks about it going down to even his feet and she wiping his feet with it. Um, the fact is that this thing was a Roman pound. It's like 11 and a half ounces. You can imagine like a can of soda like being dumped on Jesus' head. So more than likely, she either dumps them on his head, dumps on his feet, wiped his feet, or just dumped the whole thing on his head and it just went straight down to his feet. They would have, he would have been sitting feet away from the table, reclining towards the table, and it probably would have just kind of gone that way. And then she would have anointed his head and then wiped his feet with her, with her hair. What she's doing here is a fairly normal custom in the sense that you would entertain your guests. I don't know why. Probably because modern sanitary things didn't exist back then and people smelled when they were over your house, but you would entertain your guests by putting little like smelly things on them. But she's doing it in an extremely unusual way, completely away from the custom of the time in that she is, first of all, using a massive amount of it. Second of all, using an extremely expensive version of it. And third of all, just kind of dumping the entire thing on him. And then humbling herself where they would have already washed Jesus' feet to wipe his feet with it as well. It's worship. She is seeing in Jesus something of value, and then she's being judged for her reaction to that. And the fact of the matter is, the positive application is that God knows our intentions and invites that kind of worship. When other people don't, when we, we are judged by the world for how we worship God, when we're judged by cultures for how we worship God, for how we approach him, when it doesn't make sense to them, Jesus says, yes, be concerned with it being biblical, be concerned with it being correct to scripture, but know that I accept it in those lights. Know that I am willing to take that worship that everybody else wants to judge. You look like a weirdo. I understand it. I love it. It's an expression of what you know about me. It's an expression of what you're seeing in me. And she saw Jesus as somebody who was worth a full year's wage and then some. Spent in a moment of worship because she loved him. And she had a pattern of this. This isn't just some random thing where she was being wasteful. This is a persistent pursuit of the, the value she saw in Christ. And I would encourage us as a church that we aren't concerned with, by, with, with how the world views our worship. Also, that we're not concerned with how maybe other people in the body view our worship. That might mean we're welcoming, welcoming some weird, albeit biblical things into our worship sessions, but if Jordan's bouncing around like a crazy man during worship, that's okay. Amen. Right? Okay. It, it's always you. Yeah. If it's, you're just sitting in the wrong spot. If it's by God's design, God welcomes it. Christ welcomes it. 
And he designed our hearts to tune itself to a love for him and admiration for him. And he accepts that when other people around us are confused or angry about it. I just want to touch on one, one other thing here and then we're going to move on. He's not discouraging giving to the poor. I hope I don't have to belabor that in this church because I think we've heard Jacob preach enough sermons that encourage us to be a light to our community, take part in our community, help people, love people, be a neighbor, be the type of person that Jesus was when he was on earth. But the verse that Jesus is quoting, if you read it the way it's stated, he says, you'll always have the poor with you. This doesn't mean ignore them. It means they'll literally always be here. This moment is okay. Like this moment that she just, this, this five seconds that she just wasted and this money that she just wasted on me, she has her entire lifetime to make up for that, giving it to the poor. This is something I accept. This was something that was done for me. It was done in the right moment. It was led by the Spirit. But he's not saying don't give to the poor. The, the rest of the verse in Deuteronomy that he's quoting says, keep your hand wide open. He's reminding the disciples that, yes, you should help the poor, but it's important, but if that's important, how much more important is recognizing something in Christ that is worthy of their love and devotion? And that's what they were missing. That's why he's saying this. And you know, we can, we can fall into that trap too. We can fall into a trap where we're so focused on our neighbors, even though we should be focused on them, that we're so focused on the actions we take, on, on earning and being and doing and in serving that we miss out on the beautiful moments of devotion to Christ and seeing him for who he is. And then even though he knows everything, reminding him that that's how we feel. God knows our intentions and he welcomes us to worship. He knows everything and he welcomes us. A few other things about what's going on here is that it's Judas who spoke up, like I said, and he's representative of the whole. They, they did agree with him according to other, other um, stories, other versions of the story and other records of the gospel. But it was Judas who spoke up. The, the value that's being referenced here was approximately three times the worth that Judas is ultimately going to accept to kill Jesus, by the way. Turn him over. Also, Judas didn't have any intention of helping the poor. Uh, we're told that he was a thief, that he was the treasurer who regularly stole from the purse, that he had no intention, that he wanted the money for himself. And it brings us to number two, that God knows our hearts and invites our company. He knows our hearts and he invites our company. The scene with Judas... Uh, we're not going to read the entire thing for the sake of time, but he leaves this, maybe at some point between um, verses, uh, what would have been the end of, uh, end of this passage, so verses uh, 13 and the starting of verse 1. But Judas ultimately leaves. He goes to the priests that are plotting to kill Jesus. He says, hey, I have a way. I'm going to get this accomplished. What are you going to give me for it, though? And so we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. He says, done. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And again, we're only dealing with like a couple of days here. So he's actively seeking out an opportunity. He's actively planning this. Over a couple of days, probably a frantic plan that Judas is going over. 
intentional. And they approach Jesus and say, hey, Passover is coming up. Um, what are we going to do to have Passover dinner for you? What, what, how are we preparing this? And he says, well, you go, go into the city. There's going to be a man there. Again, God is knowing all things. There's going to be a man there, and you tell him that we're going to have Passover at his house. And he sits down with them at this Passover meal a couple days before Passover is actually going to start. Or day before, anyways. And he says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And it's kind of funny that not all of them, this, is, this kind of shows the... Um, the ability that Judas had to pass himself off. No one says, is it Judas? <laughs> oh, one of us, oh, it's, it's, everyone knows it's Judas. This is awkward. Just leave, dude. No one's saying that. They're all, is it me? Are we going to do this? They couldn't believe anyone was going to do it. Judas had it, it ingrained himself into their life, into their community. He had become a part of the team. No one knew it was going to be Judas. They're all wondering if it was going to be them. And Jesus says, he who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Well, that's how they ate. They all dipped their hands in the dish. So he's not giving them any information here. The Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That is true of anyone who's not under grace. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he says, you have said so. It's interesting, just really quick to point out, he uses a completely different word than the other disciples did. They were calling him Lord. He was calling him just teacher. And what do we get from this? I would say, and I, again, writing the sermon, nobody comes to mind. It gets a little pointed, so I'm just going to throw, I'm not thinking of anyone. Being in the church does not make you of the church. You can enjoy the privileges of God's covenant family. You can pursue them. You can make up a religious profession and have your heart be completely absent from it. Judas was a chosen disciple, an apparent friend of Christ. He was an eyewitness of miracles, a hearer of the greatest sermons ever preached. He saw, he saw what Abraham and Moses, Elijah and David longed to see and never got to see. He lived in community with the other 11. He was a fellow laborer with them. Yet his heart was completely absent from it. It was belonging to something else. And I think the passage makes it clear, not to, not to draw it to one thing, but Judas loved money. He loved money. And I think it speaks the fact that while money was a problem over 2,000 years ago, it, re it remains a very massive issue today. Entire heresies, entire false religions, entire false communities are built around the idea that if you love God, if you're faithful, if you give all that you have, then you'll, there's going to be a massive payout at the end of all that. And it takes Christ out of the picture. It takes love for Christ out of the picture. It takes the devotion that that woman had for Christ out of the picture. And it replaces it with a payout. It replaces it with something else. 
And that's Judas's issue, is that it was never about following Jesus. He's a thief. He had an entirely different aspiration and goal. And if you're coming into church, and I'm not saying this about anyone here, I don't believe it to be true about anyone, but if you're coming here because you're just loving the benefits of what God's family has to give, and you're not loving God himself, that's a problem. And it's not just going to be a problem for you, it's going to cause problems for other people. There's people in this church that love you if you're in here, that care about you, and it's going to hurt them when that eventually becomes apparent. And while some of those supposed benefits, just so we're not policing everybody, are to be watched for, we want to be careful, we want to be wise, I want to say that there's a clear benefit of being among the people of God while not being one of his people. Judas may not be the best example of this, but it does bear mentioning that a church, a true church, followers of Christ who love the gospel, it's a great place for a lost person to be, regardless of their intentions. It's the primary means by which God, which, by which Christ saves sinners, and we should want them among us. We would prefer that they come in under the pretense of being believers. Yes. But as we'll see when, when Jacob takes us through 1 Corinthians as a church, there's entire biblical systems for coming alongside those who join us but don't show any evidence that they really belong. I mean, there's a lot of issues facing today's modern church that, that could be spoken of here. Um, I just want to, to leave it at primarily that this is a warning Christ was giving all of his disciples. That this is possible. This is something that could happen. Uh, I will say it was the minority. The other 11 went on and died for Christ. But it's possible, and it should cause us to search our own hearts. Not the people around us, necessarily, but our own hearts. We should be searching. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Paul died daily. Greatest Christian ever lived, and he struggled every single day to put these things down. Our sovereign God truly knows us, and he welcomes us anyways. He doesn't welcome us because of what he knows, he welcomes us anyways. And lastly, God knows our weaknesses and he invites us to the gospel. Uh, last passage, last part of this passage, Jesus speaks directly to the other 11. Judas would have exited according to another passage already, even doesn't it specifically call that out here. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the, that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will, scatter, will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I'm going to be careful not to preach next week's sermon on this, on this point. So we're going to stop at verse 35 and not really mention what happens down the road. The, the point is that Jesus knows our weaknesses and he still invites us to his table. Or we could say he knows our weaknesses and so he invites us to his table. I think it's apparent through scripture it's not apparent through scripture. You can probably see it in my life, in the lives of other Christians around you. God is not in the habit of picking winners for his team. He doesn't pick the best and the brightest. He doesn't pick, he doesn't pick winners. Jesus spent his earthly ministry gathering a bunch of losers who never seemed to get the, get the point. And he chooses to spend his last moments with them. He invites us to the gospel. He knows our weaknesses and he invites us to the gospel. And we do get cute with this um, sometimes, and I want to remind us to be careful. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with the phrase, God saw value in me and therefore he died for it. Um, when scripture seems to be more along the lines of, you're kind of a loser and you needed somebody to die for you. <laughs> That's how I feel anyways about me. Um, he saw the impossibility of you making it any other way. Believe in yourself because God believes in you. I mean, if, if, that's, if that's gotten you through something, um, I think I've reminded myself as a Christian that God believes in me before. Great. I wouldn't put it on a coffee cup, but I think ultimately we, we are better serving ourselves by reminding ourselves that we are weak and we fail regularly and that God is faithful and his plan is true and it's set and it won't change. And he foreruns this idea of weaknesses by offering communion with himself. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Take, eat, take, drink, this is my blood. And he's doing this because he knows what the disciples are going to go through, not just in the day before his death, but after he dies, after he leaves. He knows what they're going to go through, and he's giving them something to remember. He's giving them something to use. He's calling them to something. And it's not vague. It's, it's a practice. It's a sacrament of the church that we're going to do today and hopefully every day that we're a church. So why do we take communion? Why do we commune with Christ? We commune with Christ because we have union with Christ. We're one with him. And so we regularly commune with him. At this church, I think I'm safe to say, I try not to like set the doctrinal temperature for us, but we don't believe it's the literal blood of Christ and body of Christ like our Catholic friends do. Um, we're good. Okay. Uh, I think that's disproven by the fact that Jesus said, this is my body, while his body was very much right in front of him. <laughs> okay? um, his blood had yet to be spilled. But we also see that it's not only for perfect people. I grew up in a church that um, abused the table, I'd say. I was on staff in a church where we would meet between services on Sunday, so only the right people came to the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, there was no right people at that first communion. <laughs> None. Well, one, yes. The person giving it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> he doesn't do this. And that First Corinthians does talk about making sure you are in um, good standing in a way. You're not abusing the table. What it's saying is that you're not unrepentant, that you're not knowingly in sin and not sorry when you come to the table because that's the dangerous thing. What it's not saying is make sure you're perfect. It's not for perfect people. I would implore you, if you think you're perfect, stay in your seat today. <laughs> and you're the only person I will ask to stay in your seat. <laughs> but I also want to say it's not just a sign Spirit, and we're not going to get into a systematic on what the Lord's Supper is, but the Spirit does something for us in those moments. That's why we take our time with it, we reflect with it. Uh, it doesn't transform into the body and blood of Christ, but the Spirit does do something. He does something to our hearts, He speaks to us. Thomas Doolittle, the English Puritan, said, Every believer seeks deeper assurance when going to the Lord's table. He said, God's children come to the table for the following reasons to have communion with God, to increase our faith in Christ and love for God, to further our joy in the Holy Spirit, our peace of conscience and hope of eternal life, to make us thankful to God for his mercy bestowed upon us in Christ, to get power against our sins, and especially to remember and show forth the death of Christ. He doesn't call us as perfect people to the table. He calls us as sinners to the table, to get power against our sin. I like what Owen said. He says, when you go to the table, you pin the devil to Christ's chariot. Doolittle said, strong believers pursue these benefits as well. It's not only for the weak Christians. Strong believers pursue these benefits even more earnestly. They come to the table seeking to have their hearts inflamed with love for God and desires after Christ. They come to have their strength more endeared to their souls, their hearts softened, their sins subdued, their faith strengthened, their evidence is cleared, their souls assured of eternal life. It is for all believers. Strong, weak, it's a time to remember your sin, to remember what Christ did to pay for your sin, to shed light on the gravity of that sin. It's a reminder that when we leave here today that that payment is still intact. That what he did rings true Monday through Saturday as well. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's also an opportunity for us to enter into communion together. It brings us together as a church because we earnestly seek God's face in those moments we remember his death as a family. We don't come to the table as perfect sons, but we come to remember that we are indeed sons and daughters of God. He said to do it in remembrance of him. So we come to the table today with our weaknesses, our failures, and our doubts. We come because Christ has instituted this practice for people like us. We come because we're invited to commune with a God who knows every little thing about us, and he beckons us to come anyways. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your death. We thank you that in the moments before your death, you chose to hang out with people who are a lot like us, who love you imperfectly, who seek to serve you imperfectly, Lord, but desire 
God, like the woman, to pour our hearts out to you. Pray that you'd grant us those moments of true affection. Will you remove the distractions from us, that you soften our hearts to not worry about what the world thinks about our worship, or really even what our other brothers and sisters in Christ might find weird about it, but God, that we'd be able to pour our hearts out to you because we see in you something worthy of that honor, worthy of our time, worthy of our money. I pray that you'd bless the rest of the service in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.